Good morning, everybody. My name is Bo Pruitt. I am a pastoral apprentice here. You may have never seen me because I'm pretty new. I've been here for six months, uh, six short months. Me and my wife moved here from a short stint in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, if any of y'all are from Cleveland, uh, I was there for a year. Um, <laughs> We are excited to be back, and I'm specifically excited to be standing up here. Uh, I love this church. I also love Advent, because Advent is a very unique season for the Christian. It's a very unique time, because it's specific to the Christian experience. It's the Christian season of waiting. The Christian season of waiting. Matt talked about this really well a few weeks back. But our waiting, just for y'all that weren't here, is a unique kind of waiting. It's an already, not yet kind of waiting. This phrase that we use to describe an understanding of the truth and fact that Jesus has already come, and he is to come again. And in the season of Advent, we actually get to truly wait and anticipate the first coming of Christ, while also truly anticipating and being excited for the second coming of Christ. But needless to say, this requires imagination because we're normal people. We don't see it right in front of us. Our lives continue on, you know. If you're like me, you just got out of a real busy week. If you're in school, uh, this might have been your finals week, as it was mine. Um, You get a little distracted at times. Work continues on. The holidays, while they are somewhat restful for some of us, are a time of travel, a time of family, a time when actually you end up doing more than you normally would on a given week. So what is required of Advent is intentional imagination to actually sit in the anticipation of the coming first and second of Jesus Christ. As a kid... I was very good at imagining. Very good. Uh, I personally was a big fan of Harry Potter. Uh, If any of y'all read those, yeah, I was a big fan. I I liked it probably too much, to be honest. Like, I was was a little bit way too into it. Um, Brady knows, Brady knows. We talked about it. But that's besides the point. You can imagine me, uh, you know, middle school. I was 4'11", very chubby, scraggly hair running to the door. My dad has a new copy of the newest Harry Potter book. I grab it. I run to my room. I read it through as fast as I can. And then I talk about it for the next year. And then the movie comes out. And I see the movie. And guess what I do for the year after that? I talk about the movie. That is literally my life. That's how I sum up my adolescence. It's just reading and seeing and talking about Harry Potter. But something really strange happened to me every time I would see a movie or read a book anytime I got to that last page and I would conclude the story. I would be filled with immense joy and excitement and wonder, but at the same time, I would always be left wanting. I would always be kind of sad, like something was floating just above my reach and I just couldn't quite catch it. I couldn't, couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was frustrating. It was a frustrating feeling because I learned quite quickly that 
I wanted the story of Harry Potter to be more real than it was. I wanted the story to be truer in my own life than it was. As a kid from Hutto, Texas, which is a northwest suburb of Austin, Texas, gotta go someday, home of the hippos, uh, Hutto hippos. Hutto, Texas is very different than the magical world of Harry Potter. And so as I was reading these books, I wanted the, the, the bright colors of Harry Potter to be true in the place in which I was so used to seeing cattle and grass and a couple Home Depots every once in a while. I wanted, in virtue, the friendships that I saw in the book, the loyalty embodied in the characters, the courage. I wanted that to be more real in my own life. And it's not just Harry Potter. If you're not a fan, I felt the same way when I finished the Chronicles of Narnia series. After every single one, I was just grasping, wanting it to be realer than it actually was. I wanted my world to be as colorful as the world of Narnia. I wanted the story to be more real than it was. And similarly, in this psalm today, we're going to read about the Davidic kingship. And if you're listening, and if we're reading it rightly, we are all going to want the psalm to be truer and realer than it actually is. So if you will, if you have your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and open to Psalm 72. So we're going to be spending our time today, Psalm 72. And just to set the stage for us while y'all are turning there, this psalm sits at the end, it's the very last psalm of the second book of Psalms, which might sound a little strange. Psalms, while one, psalms while one book, is understood traditionally as a compilation of five unique collections or books of psalms, of hymns, of prayers, of liturgies. And ours sits at the second at the end of the second book. And if you don't believe me, if you have your written Bible, you'll notice the, the physical copy. You'll notice it literally has the heading, book three, right at, under this psalm. I'm not making it up. But each of these collections within the psalms are unique and according to Jewish tradition correspond thematically to an aspect of the story of Israel. And our psalm today specifically is classified as a royal psalm. So it concerns the king, the kingship, naturally. And as I said, this psalm deals directly with the Davidic kingship. And when I'm saying Davidic kingship, I'm specifically talking about uh, God's covenant with David through the vehicle of Israel's kingship, office of king. In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, he promises to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. The Davidic covenant was the nucleus of all Old Testament hope. In the words of the prophet, all of what they said was kind of birthed out of this understanding of what was going to take place in this Davidic covenant, what was going to burst forth from it. It was a refocusing or more, it, it, it was really like a specification of what God had already promised to Abraham in Genesis. 
So we're going to be dealing with the Davidic kingship in this royal psalm in which commentators actually refer to as a coronation hymn. And if you like the crown and you love that episode, you're going to love this sermon. Because coronation hymns are really, really, coronations are really interesting. In America, we're not really used to it. But what it is is a crowning ceremony. It's not necessarily an act, but an event. This moment in which one king passes the crown off to the next. The power is handed off. Some are anointed and so on and so forth. And you actually see that pretty clearly if you read just the first two words of the psalm. It says, of Solomon. This confused me for, for about a week. It says, of Solomon. And then you go to the very end of the psalm. And it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This signals not only the end of the second book of the Psalms, but it's also showing that in some way, these two individuals play part in the content of the psalm. And since it is a coronation hymn, the passing off from one power to the next, we can understand it as really a dad's prayer and hope for his son as he's passing the crown to the next king of Israel. And what's going to focus our time today are three facets of the Davidic kingship, three specific hopes, things that David wants Solomon to be a king of. The first is righteousness and justice. David wants his son to be a king of righteousness and justice. Two, a king of power and compassion. And three, a king of eternal influence. So if you would... As I've already stated, we are going to be in Psalm 72. Join me there, and we are just going to walk through this psalm together. So the first facet, David wants Solomon to be a king of righteousness and justice. Starting in verse 1, David writes, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. This is really a summary of what the rest of the psalm is going to flow out of. This idea or notion that the king is to be righteous and just. Everything else in this psalm flows out of that want, out of that desire, out of that wish. Verse 3 shows us the implications of a king of righteousness or a king of justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. A righteous king, a just king, cultivates an environment for the blessings of God to abound. When a king is righteous and just, the people will feel the effects of it. That's basically what it's saying. And we ask the question, I'm saying righteous and just and righteous and just. What does that mean? That means so many different things for so many different people. They're such big words. But David defines, or fleshes out rather, what it means to be a king of righteousness and a king of justice in the fourth verse of this psalm. He writes, May they fear you, or sorry, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That is what a righteous king does. That is what a just king does. He defends the cause of the poor of the people. He gives deliverance to the children of the needy. He uses his authority for those who have none. 
it's, it's a pretty beautiful picture. And honestly, going back a little bit, as I stated, each psalm, each book of the psalm, corresponds thematically with a portion of Israel's journey, their story. Book two corresponds with the Exodus account. So we're seeing Exodus themes, like this notion that God is to be a righteous and just king that in response to being righteous and just liberates his people is reflective of our God who in his power and love, his righteousness and justice liberated the Israelites from the bounds of Egypt. Continuing on, uh, five through seven, still showing that God or that the king is to be righteous and just, um, is really an emphatic restatement of the first four verses. David writes, starting in verse five, may they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish in peace abound till the moon be no more. What a beautiful, beautiful image. It's strikingly similar, actually, to the last words of David recorded in 2 Samuel 23. David says in this passage, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. While verse four tells us uh, the, the way that righteousness flows forth from a king, this shows us what it looks like. It gives us an image to picture in our head. This is what a righteous king does and is. Light in life to the fullest. Holistic flourishing for the nation that he is over. Going to the next thing that David wants his son Solomon to be. He wants him to be a king of power and compassion. Power and compassion. Starting in verse 8, David writes, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The king is to be utterly powerful. I mean, that is, that is so clear in this. And it's, it's kind of cool because we actually know that in the reign of Solomon, you did have kings and queens journeying out of their way to hear his wisdom, to seek what he had to say about certain things. But also, power, especially reading it in the context of an earthly authority, can be kind of off-putting for a lot of us. Power has a pretty negative connotation because many of us, if not all of us, have experienced a manipulation of power, an abuse of power, power used for self-seeking rather than for the sake of the other. And even at times, even in Israel's own history, power has been used to oppress, to bog down, to even enslave. 
But the psalmist is careful here. David is careful. The king is not just to be powerful for power's sake. He continues on in verse 12 by balancing out this understanding by saying, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. This king is to be utterly powerful utterly powerful. <laughs> he makes his enemies lick the dust, yet he is completely compassionate. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of them. And the most striking, striking sentence is the very last one, and precious is their blood in his sight. For this king, his people, and those in the surrounding nations are not merely subjects. They're not bodies. For this king, their blood itself is precious. They have a dignity that other nations do not recognize. There is something different about this kingdom. This kind of goes back to this Exodus theme. God does not liberate the people of Israel just to bring them into a new kind of oppression. He liberates them into something. He turns slaves into worshipers. He brings new life to their personhood. Dignity that has never been seen or experienced before is bestowed upon anyone who comes in contact with this individual. The king is not using his power to dominate, but liberate. The final thing, the final thing that David wants his son Solomon to be a king of is a king of, a king of eternal effect. Specifically, he wants him to be an eternal king. This is a very interesting portion of the passage, so bear with me for a second. Verse 15 states, Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continued as long as the sun May people call him blessed. All nations call him blessed. So I say this passage is interesting, this portion of the psalm, because the psalmist so clearly speaks of this king in human temporal terms. He says, long may he live as if he can die. He's talking specifically about an earthly reign of a king who tangibly interacts with the nations. Yet, there are moments when there's these notable shifts. David says, may his name endure forever and his fame continue as long as the sun. He says, going back up to verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. 
There is eternal significance to the ruling of this king that David desires. And if we remember that this is a psalm, a coronation hymn, in which David is actually praying for his son, hoping for his son, hoping for the Davidic kingship in general, it's a little weird that he's mixing temporal terms with eternal terms. It reminds us of Genesis 12, when Yahweh promises Abram something very special. Genesis 12 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will, bless those, I will bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is through humans that God hopes to accomplish his will, his promise. And he does this in a unique way if we look through the lens of the Davidic kingship, a refocusing of this original promise to Abraham. God not only is going to use the, the Davidic kingship as a vehicle of his transformation, but it's not only going to impact Israel. That doesn't make any sense in terms of kingship. What England does has little effect with how America lives its daily life. This is saying that what the king does, what this king that is anticipated does, is going to change all of us. It's going to bless us, even transform us, if you will. The psalmist rephrases and repackages this promise into the categories of Davidic kingship. And it is, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. We want a king who's eternal because we want this to be true for eternity. It's that simple. We want a king who's going to be righteous and just forever. We don't want just one good guy who's going to live 50 good years or a really nice woman who's going to live 30 to 40, 50 years. We don't want that. We want someone who's going to reign in righteousness and justice forever. Someone who's going to reign in power and compassion forever. In conclusion, this psalm describes a king who is righteous and just. This, this psalm describes a king who is powerful yet peaceful a king who is human yet eternal and i hope you're with me when i say this i want this to be more real than it is i want this to be in front of me i want this i want to to grab it but it's just floating right above my reach and it's frustrating I read the Old Testament, the story of this Davidic kingship, the way that it pans out, and it is pretty disturbing. You read the kings and you see that these kings took advantage of the authority, they manipulated it and served it for their own purposes. Even kings like Josiah, the good king who recovered the law, even he leaves us wanting more. Because we want him to be 
All of these things, righteous and just, powerful and compassionate, human yet eternal, but some are only a few of them. In our own life, outside of of maybe this Davidic kingship that we're thinking in terms of, we look at power and authority and we may feel the same way. In the past several years, um, it has been revealed, really the disturbing underbelly of America has been revealed. Uh, The abuse and the manipulation of power at the expense of others within politics, within media, and even within the church itself. Taking the thing that God meant to be good and making it evil. Many, many, many people have been hurt by this abuse of power. Maybe some of you sitting in this room today. In reading the psalm, it's clear that this king that David wants his son to be, that Solomon wants himself to be, that is anticipated in the very core of the hope of Israel itself is to be righteous and just, powerful and compassionate, human and eternal. But yet, even in our experience, we are left wanting it to be truer wanting it to be more real than it is. Solomon was the king of Israel, and he was also the son of a king. And yet when he passed, all Israel had to say about him in 1 Kings is that he made the yoke of the people of Israel heavy. If you know the story of Solomon, you know that he actually was pretty good at his job. He actually had some of these things going for him. He was very powerful. Kings and queens throughout the land came and visited him because he had all the earthly wisdom in the world living inside himself. Economic success, political success. And yet, when he passed, all the nation of Israel had to say about him was that he made the yoke of the people of Israel heavy. But there is another king. Praise the Lord. There is another king, and he too is the son of a king. He too is from the the line of David, and he too has all of the wisdom in the world inside of himself. Whose yoke is easy and burden is light, Jesus Christ is this good king. The good king who offers us freedom in himself. Freedom from the weight of the world and the darkness that surrounds us. Going back to 2 Samuel, the coming of the good king, Jesus Christ, is like the light of morning. At sunrise on a cloudless morning. That's what it's like, y'all. That's what it's like. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself tells us what the light is. It is him. I am the light of the world. 
I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The coming of the good king is the offering of light to humanity. The coming of the good king, Jesus Christ, is like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. It's life. Jesus himself, referencing to himself, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. The life and the light promised of a king who is entirely righteous and entirely just is realized in the person of Jesus Christ. All of the promises of the past and all of the promises of the future are sitting within him. Within him. And he's offered us to participate in that. In that exciting story of his redemptive purposes for humanity. When we read those stories, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, any of those Christian books that people love, you are left wanting more. You want it to be realer. You are, you are reaching, trying to grasp something. That aching in your heart is so painfully present. But the answer to that ache, the fullness and realization of that want, is Jesus Christ himself, the good king, who is entirely righteous and entirely just, who is so utterly powerful we can't comprehend and so completely compassionate, seeing our very blood as precious, giving dignity to dust, to dust. He is human, but he is the eternal God, incarnate word, second person of the Trinity, beautiful, beautiful God. If you leave forgetting everything I've said, which I hope you don't, but you might, hear me say this, because this is Advent, and we are all waiting for something. The good king has come. The good king has come, and he is making all things new. The good king has come, and he is making all things new. This psalm concludes with a climactic doxology, as all psalms do at the very end of the book in which they represent. This doxology reads, starting in verse 18, if you'd like to follow along, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Habakkuk 2.14 says that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that prophecy is realized in the singing of the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. For Jesus has come, and the good king is coming again. So if you will, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you today 
in anticipation for the coming of your son. The good news that Jesus is who he said he is and will do as he has said he will do. We love you, Lord. Help us learn to love you more. We pray this in Jesus' perfect and holy name. Amen.